Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the True Blue Crime Podcast. My name is Dan, and as always, I will be your host for this episode. I just got back from a week-long break from producing the podcast, enjoying a sun-filled 4th of July at my cabin in northern Minnesota. I did enjoy my time away, but I am also glad to be back in my chair doing this podcast for all my listeners. And a big thank you to user Felicia Maria 22 on Apple Podcasts for posting a rating and leaving a nice review. I appreciate you taking the time to do that. And for no cost whatsoever, everyone, please remember, please... You can rate and review the show on whatever platform you're listening to as it helps build our listenership. Now, if you would like to get updates about what the podcast is up to, please like and follow the True Blue Crime Productions Facebook page. More information can be found at the show's website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. And if you'd like to email me directly, my email is truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. And if you can, please support the show via Patreon. Any donation level helps, and it will help ensure I can keep making free episodes of the podcast and expand the podcast in the future. Any donations will receive a shout-out in a future podcast and a thank-you message from the host. Now, without any further ado, let's dive into this episode of True Blue Crime. The now-household names of people such as Britney Spears, Christina Aguilera, Justin Timberlake, and Ryan Gosling are known for their contributions to pop music and entertainment. But in 1993, they were mostly unknown names when they were cast onto the scene via a show called The All-New Mickey Mouse Club. The show featuring teenage actors performed sketch comedy and covered pop songs and ran for five years from 1989 to 1994, and it was targeted at the children of the generation that fell in love with Mickey Mouse. It was the baby boomer children of the 1950s that helped lift Disney to prominence. While Disney cartoons like Peter Pan, Cinderella, and Lady and the Tramp ruled the theaters in the first half of the 1950s, the first Mickey Mouse Club came to the small screens in 1955 via the wonder of television. The show had a similar five-year run from 1955 to 1959, and while none of the stars reached the level of popularity their Mouseketeers of the 1990s would reach, the actors that appeared on the show were well-known and the show was rather successful. Main actors on the show were considered on the, quote, Red Team, end quote, and most original Red Team members were on the show for the entire run. Less featured actors were on the quote, blue team, end quote, but some of the blue team members did earn the rights to be on the red team as time progressed. One of those actors was a boy named Dennis Day, and today's story is about his life, his time as a missing person, and his murder. Dennis Day was born on July 12, 1942, in Las Vegas, Nevada, and moved to Downey, California as a young boy. His father was a golf course superintendent, and his mother was an office manager, but they encouraged their children to go after their dreams of being in the limelight. In 1953, Dennis appeared in an uncredited role in a James Cagney film named A Lion is in the Streets. Shortly after the movie premiered, he auditioned for the original Mickey Mouse Club. His audition was a dance routine that he performed with one of his sisters, and the routine collapsed due to a mistake made by the pianist providing the music. Not wanting to give up his chance, Dennis walked over to the pianist and came up with a plan for a restart so they could finish their routine. The casting panel took notice of Dennis's ability to maintain his composure and reconcile a tough situation and the decision was made to cast the 13-year-old as an original cast member. Disney invested a lot of time and money into the pre-show publicity and Dennis was tasked with modeling different outfits for the show, doing exclusive performances for executives, and even appearing in publicity photos. It came to a shock to many when they found out that Dennis couldn't sing. He was a phenomenal dancer, but had no singing talent, and the show required both. Having used Dennis for a lot of publicity, the decision was made to keep him on the show for his dancing abilities, and he continued to impress many people with his stage presence. He was exceptionally good at capturing emotion with his face, and a lot of the reaction shots featured Dennis looking directly at the camera during some of the first season's key moments. As a result, he was elevated to the red team at the end of the first season, as his character gained popularity and he was signed on for a second season. 
His second season was also a success, but his lack of singing ability must have finally taken its toll and he wasn't signed for any other seasons. After leaving the show in 1957, the now 15-year-old Dennis Day continued to find work where he could in the entertainment industry. He would never again be credited in a movie or a TV show, but he did appear on a show in 1968 to celebrate Mickey Mouse's 40th birthday and on a 1980 Mouseketeer reunion show. At 18 years old, Dennis Day came out as gay. And I'll take an aside here because it's I think often we do these podcasts, it's if you're listening to it, it's sometimes hard to put yourself in a, t- a certain time period, especially when I'm just talking about the background, the childhood, or or experiences of somebody that I'm going to talk about later. This crime is going to occur in the much more modern era. So him coming out as gay after he turned 18 was because he didn't think a lot of people, including I'm assuming his parents, would accept it. And this is a time period that, yes, it's the he would have been right around 1960 when this would have happened. And there was some beginning to the counterculture revolution going on, but it wouldn't be near the heyday that it would be in the late sixties and early seventies. And so we're coming out of still a very conservative time period of, of the fifties where Everything from music to entertainment was was very conservative-based. So him coming out as gay would have been a a, a very big deal at the time. Uh, It's not not to say that coming out in 2023 is any less of a either a difficult task for some people or an enlightening experience for some people. I'm not saying that you know for the individual and themselves. It's it's any different coming out in 1960 than it would be in in 2023 but i'm saying from what they're going to meet in society in terms of a level of acceptance this would have been uh quite a, a difficult task for him to do but he does come out as gay in in 1960 he's going to go and perform in some of the theaters in new york and eventually going to move to san francisco and meet his future husband henry ernest uh caswell who goes by ernie caswell Now, there's limited information about what Dennis did between this time in his life and where the true crime story begins, but I will go over some of the limited information. Uh, It did state that Ernie and him ran a guest house for gay actors in San Francisco from the 1960s until the 1980s. And, And again, this is a time period where this is a very the end of a really conservative era, the beginning of a more progressive era Uh, however it's likely that there was still a ton of discrimination against uh, homosexuals at this time period so ernie and dennis are running this guest house for gay actors in san francisco he's also working as an acting coach he's directing stage musicals and it's said in there that he managed a head shop at one time he also admitted he did a lot of drugs during the 60s and 70s which would be something rather common in San Francisco during this time period. This is the uh, time period of the Haight-Ashbury days, and so there's a lot of experimentation with drugs, and it was just, just again, rather a common thing. So he's he's involved in this entertainment lifestyle. He's very active in the, the gay community in San Francisco at this time period. And in the 1980s, Dennis and Ernie moved to Ashland, Oregon, eventually settling in Phoenix, Oregon. They had a small place, and Ernie worked for the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, and Dennis had a line of wine jellies and worked seasonally for a premium food and gift store. After 37 years of being a couple, they were officially married in 2009, and their wedding was part of an organized event that was aimed at those protesting gay marriage in Oregon during these difficult years for the same-sex couples. And and again, it's, it's interesting when I'm doing the research because I come across not so much the time periods before my time. I, I wasn't born in the 60s and 70s, so I don't know what times were like then. But it's difficult sometimes when I come across research like this and realize that it was just 2009 
that we had the major move in legislation towards uh, gay marriage across the country and how many states put it on the ballot to try to make it illegal uh, officially and, and different things. And so I think this goes back to when I covered the Matthew Shepard case and we talked about how long it took you know, from that, the late 90s until around this time, the late 2000s, to really change um, American viewpoints on things such as, as gay marriage and gay rights and that kind of stuff. So uh, I know we just celebrated Pride Week not too long ago, and and it's it, to me it's just a shock again that it's only we're only 14 years removed from uh, a time period that, that seems almost archaic, uh, in today's world but um, getting back to the story as both Ernie and Dennis aged the men developed health problems and on July 17, 2018 Ernie was admitted to the hospital due to a fall Ernie was battling dementia and colon cancer so he needed to stay in the hospital while Dennis was at their home alone this is where the details are going to get a little confusing mainly because there's a lot of different source material out there that has different dates attached to it so some sources are going to say that Ernie fell on July 15th. Some say it, um, the fall happened on the 15th, but he was admitted on the 17th. And there's other combinations of these dates. So this case is not going to come down to specific days, thankfully. Um, so we're just going to go with kind of a mid-July. A lot of stuff is going to be happening here in mid-July. So we'll just use that as the date range at this point. So... What we do know is clear is that prior to Ernie's fall, Dennis had called the Phoenix, Oregon Police Department to report that a handyman that they allowed to live there named Daniel Berta had behaved violently towards him, and he was advised to seek civil action to evict Berta. And that's something we haven't talked about yet. It's something I ran into a lot when I was a police officer is whether it's a significant other or a friend or in most cases a adult child that's living in a house it varies from state to state uh, the state that i was a police officer in in minnesota it's very common to have uh, what's called a, a 30 day eviction period uh, and you have to serve the person who's living there uh, with an unlawful detainer it's called as a legal document saying you have basically you know 30 days to, to leave or you're going to be evicted it's especially a big deal in minnesota because in the winter you know when we're talking it can get negative 20 negative 25 wind chills of negative 50 uh, the state does not want people to have the capability to just kick somebody out into the cold and what people don't realize is this often applies to somebody who j just lives with you for a short period of time it, basically if they've been allowed to establish any form of residence there and there's not the law isn't really clear on how long it takes to establish residence basically the civil courts will look at it as if they feel like they quote unquote live there then you can't just force them to leave you can't take their stuff and throw it out in the front yard i mean you can but you could then be sued by the person for an unlawful eviction so as a police officer when we were called out to these civil issues a lot of the times we had to explain to people that if, if a crime hasn't occurred and there's not a court order in place that removes that person from that residence we can't get involved in civil situations unless a crime has occurred so in doing the research here i can't tell if these quote-unquote violent actions are behaved violently towards him what specifically was said we're gonna find out that this Daniel Berta has some mental health issues and there's a big difference in a lot of states and it does again vary state to state between physically assaulting somebody and just yelling at them now some states depending on what you say it could be determined to be terroristic threats however if it's just somebody who has a mental health issue and is having difficulty controlling their emotions and is just getting angry and 
you know, storming around the place or even picking up and destroying their own property, there's not technically a crime that occurs there. And police are often caught in this middle ground of trying to find a way to keep the peace, but also not violate anybody's civil rights because police have to be worried. And as we're going to find out in this case, um, no matter what they're going to do, they're, they're likely going to get sued. But police always have to walk that fine line between trying to find a reasonable solution to a problem, but not actually having any authority to say arrest somebody because a crime hasn't occurred. And so merely they're just going to offer suggestions in most cases. And it sounds like that's what they did here. Again, I don't have the specifics to know whether or not the issue should have been pushed further. All I know is that the source material said that there was a phone call to the police a few days prior um, stating that this Daniel Berto was acting violently towards uh, either Dennis or Ernie or both, and they wanted him removed. Now, it's shortly after Ernie is admitted to the hospital that Dennis is going to be reported as missing, and the date of July 17th is often listed as the date of the missing person's report, but it's reported the last time anyone not suspecting of being involved with with his disappearance saw him was July 15th. And that's why I think the sequence of events is the call about the violent behavior and eviction is made around July 13th. Now, Ernie's going to fall and be hospitalized around July 15th. And either first responders at the house or if there weren't first responders at the house, maybe it's hospital staff, are going to see Dennis on July 15th. And then eventually two days are going to go by and Dennis doesn't visit his husband and Ernie gets concerned and contacts Phoenix PD to report him missing. And this is going to be one of those investigations that's really frustrating to not just listen to, but I'm sure to live through uh, from all angles. And it's going to come down to, I don't know if I've mentioned this before or not, but I think I have the homicide detective i went to a training he talked about how every case you get it's like being dealt the hand of poker and you just don't quite know what you're going to get in that hand sometimes it's a winning hand and sometimes it's a hand you really have to work with in order to win and in this case you know we've mentioned ernie's got severe dementia or at least enough dementia it's going to make things very difficult it's reported that they these two live in a very reclusive lifestyle and we're going to talk about some of the conditions they were living in eventually but it does not seem as if they have regular contact with family or close friends so getting information about specific dates times activities expected behavior is going to be very difficult in this case and police are going to interview Ernie and they're going to ask him questions like what was Dennis wearing and of course partially because Ernie's in the hospital and Dennis would have been in the home Ernie's not going to know these questions whether he has dementia or not but ultimately Ernie's not able to provide them with a lot of usable information and so they're going to track down this Daniel Berta. Investigators are going to talk to him on a couple occasions. And it's reported that there's video out there, there'd be body cam or dash cam video of police talking to Daniel Berta. And you can see what would be called defensive wounds on his hands and forearms. And I know we've talked about this before um, defensive wounds, what they are, they're, you know, Basically, when you get in a fight, it's very rare that one person, unless they're somehow subdued uh, chemically or bound by rope or whatever it might be, if you don't have a complete control situation when you attack that other person, they're likely going to fight for their life. And when they do, the person who's aggressing on the other person is still going to sustain some level of injury whether it be scratches bruises and that's why you'll often see 
instances where it's believed that one person was involved in a fight and killed another person where they're taking pictures of hands the the, the knuckles the arms the the chest the back the neck the the face because these are areas that are very common to sustain these uh, defensive wounds and I, and I say defensive even though it's likely the aggressor in this case it, it's just it's wounds the body gets as they're deflecting attacks by the person that they're attacking so bird is going to tell officers that the last time he saw dennis was a few days before he went missing and that dennis left to visit friends taking his dog with them and now other sources are going to say Berta told officers that Dennis left on foot and left his beloved dog and cat behind. And this is where, again, source material is very difficult. I don't have a police report in front of me. And even then, sometimes you talk to two different eyewitnesses and they give you two different versions of the same story. The, the long and short of it is that Dennis left and now... The thing I find interesting is we've talked about it before. There's certain things that some that get left behind by quote-unquote missing people that are pretty key indicators that that person did not intend to go missing. Now, Dennis and Ernie are not going to have any children. Uh, they didn't uh, adopt any children. They didn't um, weigh, especially by the time that they're married, and, and I guess it's their partnership is more accepted by society however you want to say it they're kind of past the age of having kids and i don't know if either of them ever wanted to have kids but ultimately they're not going to have kids and a lot of the times people that don't have kids they have pets and those pets become their kids and the last thing that any of these people are ever going to do is leave one of their beloved pets behind so just as in the case we've talked so many of these missing persons reports it's not always what's taken, although that can give you clues as well. It's what's left behind that let investigators know that something isn't right. So in either case, and again, even the source material doesn't say where the dog and cat were at this point. So that might give some insight into, you know, if I were to have taken a missing persons report and I go to that house and... You know, the person has a cat, and the cat looks like food is left out for them, uh, and looks like they're going to be cared for. And somebody's coming back. That might be, you know, an indicator that that person wasn't make planning on making a major change in their lifestyle. Whereas, if if there's they give away the the pet, they have somebody that they trust that probably would adopt the, the pet taking care of the pet when they leave there might be more indicators that their intention was to leave and, and commit suicide or leave and disappear or whatever it might be you know, people do many many different things to protect the ones they love including uh, pets so whenever one of these pets is left behind it's usually a pretty big clue that that person did not intend to disappear. And we're going to further complicate the case because Dennis didn't use social media, which is a key component in a lot of missing persons reports past, say, 2010. We talked about the case uh, in uh, South Carolina, the Todd Kohlhepp case, where you know, it was the weird social media messages that didn't look like they were coming from uh, the missing couple that clued investigators into the fact this couple was missing and eventually led to the rescue of, of the female in that case. We talked about other cases where social media has come into play, but Dennis isn't using social media, so there's going to be no information there. He had a pay-by-the-minute cell phone service, which didn't have any form of active tracking, so they can't ping his cell phone because it's not hooked up to a constant service. It only uses service when he makes a phone call. And one source said there was no bank activity on his cards, and then the report we'll talk about later contradicts that in the investigation. But at this point, police are under the impression that Dennis just disappeared. 
So other than Berta's statements, there are no witnesses to the disappearance and no evidence suggests where he may have gone. Officers would search the residence three times and the first was during the initial missing person report. And, and when I say three times, I assume it's three times because I only saw indications that it was three times. It did say they made several welfare checks, which are just going and knocking on the door to see if he returned at any point during this this investigation. But it didn't say that they did any quote unquote searches or full blown searches during these check welfare. So as far as I know, it's only the three searches, but there could have been more. And when I say searching the residence, I should talk about the property. The property presented many unique challenges. The house sits on a wooded 3.5 acres of property and Dennis appeared to have a love for the outdoors and the photos of the house from the outside showed a lot of potted plants and gardening items. So it's likely Dennis liked to spend time on the grounds around the house. So this is gonna present investigators with several different options. And this is kind of in any stage of an investigation, investigators are weighing options. This is this is what they have to do in order to follow potential lines of evidence or thought. And in, in most cases, if there's evidence, you're going to follow the evidence. And that's likely going to lead you to your solution as to what happened. However, in a case like this where there's very little evidence, you're going to have to come up with some of these possible options or possible theories and then come up with plans to either prove one of these theories is the one and only possible or find evidence to point in, in a direction of another theory. So one of these theories is Dennis did what Berta said and he walked to a friend's house and something happened along the way. And we have many cases and there's cases I haven't covered yet because some of them are unsolved like the Maura Murray case where one second there's eyewitnesses that Moore Murray is involved in this accident and is outside her car. And a few minutes later, nobody's ever seen her again. So there are cases where in the middle of a, somebody's transit from one location to another, they just go missing and are never found. And that's, you know, a distinct possibility on here. And this, it can be as, as, foul play involved as an abduction and it can be as sad and, and tragic in a different way as some type of a hit and run where a vehicle hits somebody and they panic and flee and the body you know goes into a ditch or a wooded area where it's devoured by animals and nobody finds it again there's there's so many different possibilities of if bird is telling the truth that something could have happened dennis on his walk to his friend's house uh, second option is something happened to him at the house and the body is now somewhere that investigators don't know so if he was killed and then the body was removed from the home and dumped somewhere like that's another option investigators have to 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 determine and then finally he could have had a medical issue somewhere and collapsed and this is 3.5 acres which doesn't sound like a whole lot but 3.5 wooded acres i think there's a creek running through there it doesn't take much for somebody to get lost and again i don't know how well they knew this area and i don't know if these 3.5 acres backed up to a large park or a large or a large area where if he was walking and had a medical emergency it's very easy to just collapse and more difficult for people to find than one would think. So police are going to do a cursory search of the house and property. And this is where I'm going to talk about the, just by the pictures, the outside of the house, I mentioned kind of the potted plants the house from the outside looks like what we would call in law enforcement a trash house or a garbage house and I, I don't mean that in a derogatory fashion even though there's really no way to say it nicely there's a lot of situations where people don't keep up housekeeping inside of a house so trash is going to pile up areas are not going to get cleaned um, and it could be a hoarding situation. And again, I'm just looking at the outside and 
it may be one of those situ- situations where you can't judge a book by the cover. Maybe from the outside, you know, everything's chaotic and inside it's it's neat and clean. But uh, the police are actually going to come out and say that Dennis and Ernie were reclusive and didn't leave the house much, and the house was in very, very poor shape. And I was in several of these houses over my law enforcement career where literally it was ceiling to floor boxes of old newspapers and garbage and somebody would buy something like a box for a fan and they'd fill the box up with with garbage or items and then that box would sit there and then another box and, and basically it got to the point where their house was just a series of little hallways between areas of massive amounts of junk and searching a place like that is beyond difficult when it comes to a crime scene aspect and there's many of these houses where i felt especially on these check welfares of elderly people or people in poor health that i would find somebody and oftentimes i did that was deceased in this house in uh, in a really bad condition and this can be caused by psychological issues with obsessions like hoarding some people just get apathetic about the state of their house uh, and it can or it can be due to health limitations they can't move around they don't have the energy level or the physical mobility to do it and in the cases of people who are, are, are tend to be more reclusive not having fa- a family or friends support structure that would be coming over to visit and and notice the condition of the house it's oftentimes it's going to get a lot worse a lot faster than it's ever going to be able to be cleaned up and and livable again police would come out and say that the searches and initial investigation revealed no signs of dennis and investigators were left wondering what happened and where he could have gone without telling anyone then on july 26 200 miles from Dennis's home, the police got their first break when his vehicle was discovered. But they didn't locate Dennis. Instead, they came across a man and a woman in possession of his 1990 Ford Escort station wagon. The couple stated they purchased the vehicle from two women during the previous week. And thankfully, the couple were able to identify these women and named them as Wanda Garcia and Lori DeClusen. Police would need to track down these women and obtain information in regards to how they came to possess the vehicle. And again, this is where the investigation is going to be more on the difficult side of things because Dennis is still missing at this point and Ernie's dementia is going to make him a very unreliable source of information. And vehicles are difficult because they're mobile pieces of property belonging to somebody but very easily taken by somebody else and in this case it's very hard to prove that somebody wouldn't have had permission to take dennis's vehicle because all they have to say is they got permission from dennis he's missing so you can't confirm that he didn't give them permission and the only other person that might have information about it would be ernie who's not a reliable source of information so as much as you're happy to catch this break by finding Dennis's vehicle, it's actually probably going to leave you with more questions and more fear that something happened, bad happened to Dennis, but you're not able to likely prosecute anybody. Most states, and I know Minnesota's for sure, their theft statutes state that you have to both know that that property belonged to somebody else and you had intent to take somebody else's property without permission and permanently deprive them of that. And so with civil issues like cars, and it's simple like them saying, well, Dennis said we could use the car during the month of July or for the summer or whatever it may be, and then we plan on bringing it back to him. As soon as somebody utters a statement like that, or in the case of the man and the woman found in the vehicle, we didn't know it was stolen because we bought it from somebody that said it was their car you're going to lose most abilities to prosecute these cases unless you can prove otherwise and at this point we talked about it there's not a lot of evidence so 
what we're going to have here is no charges are going to be brought against the women at this time, but the car is going to get towed back to the Phoenix, Oregon Police Department, and then eventually be returned to Ernie. And it didn't say in there whether or not the vehicle was processed. Likely it was. Uh, now, this is also going to be difficult because this is uh, roughly somewhere in the range of 10 days, so a week and a half or so after Dennis is reported missing. And as I mentioned, vehicles are very mobile and a lot of stuff can happen in them. So the amount of junk that would, that likely would have existed in the vehicle at the time that it was taken, this junk that could have accumulated in that time, the condition of the vehicle, there's a lot of areas that might not allow you to get a lot of evidence, but at the same time, I processed a lot of vehicles, whether they be stolen vehicles or vehicles involved in, in homicides or whatever they might be, where there was information in there. There was receipts with date timestamps of somebody who was in that car at some point that re those receipts can be traced back to CCTV video at a, a McDonald's or a, a gas station or whatever it might be. So I'm assuming some work was done, but again, there's not a lot of information about the specifics of this investigation. And then in August, a meal delivery volunteer called to report that the house had a terrible odor to it. Police again searched the home but found nothing of evidentiary value. And it's assumed that Ernie was back living in the home at this time. And I only say that because this is due to delivery of the food to the house. But again, the source material isn't clear because they did state that after his stay in the hospital, he went to a care facility. But I don't know if there was a, a time period in which he was back at the home in between because I can't imagine that with Dennis would have been missing for a few weeks at this point that they're still delivering food to the house if Ernie isn't there and Dennis is missing so unless there was some type of a snafu with the scheduling or whatever it might be my assumption is that Ernie's back at the house at this time getting food delivered and the food delivery person notices the smell and the police go back in to do another search of the home. They're going to see the condition of the home and the difficulty likely that Ernie's having living there. And maybe that's the event that gets him put into the care facility. Again, I'm, I'm speculating, but I'm just kind of reading between the lines of everything that was reported here. And that's my best guess as to what happened. And... The other thing about garbage houses, the reason they're called garbage houses, is they smell like garbage. Now, the stench of death or the stench of rotting flesh is a very distinct smell, different than that of garbage. But if you get into these homes, and, and this, I should describe, this house looked to be maybe a 1,000 square feet, maybe 1,500. It was hard to tell from the pictures, but it looks kind of like a one-story you know, maybe a couple bedroom home with really rundown conditions. So this isn't a lot of space to have a lot of stuff that can potentially produce a smell. And if you've got issues with mold and other things going on in this house, it's it would be difficult to pinpoint a smell in this house compared to say a house where it's immaculate except for the smell of, of, of this potential dead body. Now after the second search, from what I can tell, other than those welfare checks, there's eight months are gonna go by. And this is where, we'll talk about it again later, but because of Ernie's dementia and because of their reclusiveness, it sounds like in most of the source material that it was some time before the, their family and friends kind of figured out what was going on, that Dennis was missing and nobody had heard or seen him in months. So this is a very slow uh, trickle of information getting out. And as a result, the police, their investigation is stalled at this point. They don't have any evidence to point towards a true suspect and at this point they don't even know that a crime has occurred but as more friends and family are finding out about this 
his minor but still celebrity status as a Musketeer is going to propel this case and give it some traction in terms of pressure against the police department to start to get this thing solved. And so in April of 2019, this is roughly nine months, eight months, somewhere around there after Dennis was reported missing, a large-scale search of the home and property is going to be conducted. And it's stated in there that this time they used drones and volunteers searching the wooded area, and then they brought in cadaver dogs. Uh, cadaver dogs, don't know if we've talked about them or not, but they are dogs that are specifically trained to sent to the smell of uh, decaying flesh, dead bodies. And when the dogs can lock in on that scent, they will often bring their handlers to the source of that scent. And this can happen in cases of shallow buried graves. It can happen in cases where, you know, it's a very difficult search area uh, due to fallen debris, leaves, all that kind of stuff. So they're smartly going to bring in these cadaver dogs and ultimately it's the use of these cadaver dogs that would pay off but it was not some far out place on the property but actually inside the house itself on april 7th 2019 the badly decomposed and mostly skeletalized body of dennis day was found under a pile of clothes in the house that he was reported to have walked away from so again most people are going to be shocked at this point that you've got this small house that's been searched now three times and it took these cadaver dogs to be able to find this body inside this house. But we do have to point, go back to some facts. Again, the condition of this house described as being very, very poor by the police department. My assumption is that there's a lot of stuff in a small amount of area in this house. Uh, it was said that he's found in a large pile of clothing, which makes me believe there's probably other piles of clothing going on, other piles of, of stuff going on. I don't know if there's anything on top of this pile of clothing as well that would have made it difficult to search. And we haven't talked about it yet, but Dennis was not a large man. He was reported at this point to be about five foot seven and under 150 pounds. And not that that's a quote unquote small person in general but we're not talking about a six foot five 280 pound guy that you know is there's def a definite size difference and his size is going to make it a little bit easier for that body to be hidden however i will always be true to the actual evidence and in my opinion there should have not been three searches before this body was found. I've searched many different trash or garbage houses for, for different things. And it's kind of one of those leave no stone unturned situations, whether it was a missing small child or a missing adult and you're looking in the house for or, or check welfare or whatever it might be. Because you don't want to be the person who says you searched an area and then somebody finds something and that might be as minor as a fired cartridge case or you know some small item of evidence and in this case we're talking about a body belonging to a person who's been missing so i'm not going to without more information i'm not going to rally to the support of the police department and say that well the, the condition of the house made this impossible but i'm also not going to let them off the hook because ultimately it was their job to find this person and he wasn't in some far off remote section of the property or you know somewhere 15 miles away in the woods or anything like that where they wouldn't have known to look for he was in the home they searched twice before so that to me or even back in August when the when the first stench of death, the, the thought process of maybe bringing in some cadaver dogs for a case with a missing person that hasn't been seen in a few weeks and there's mysterious circumstances surrounding it would have compelled me to say maybe we need to take a closer look at this, not waiting you know, an additional seven or eight months until the pressure builds to this point. But again, I don't have the specifics. I'm just saying I'm not ready to completely 
exonerate the police department and I'm not ready to completely throw them under the bus at this point. I think that there's there's definitely some blame to be had. And at the same time, and maybe we'll talk about it later, but I just do have to question where the family and friends were that were, were concerned about them. Did they not have access to the home? And again, that could come down to the how the police handled this and if if they refuse to allow friends and family to look in the home then that leads a little more credence to the police department really drop the ball here whereas if family and friends are just saying well we're not even going to take the time to drive out to the house to look through and, and dig through because in my experience a lot of these cases these check welfares it's actually the family of the friends that find the person deceased in the home before they're ever reported missing and that's because they're they've got a a drive and a motivation to find their loved one more than anything else i mean police have it as a sense of duty they have it as as a sense of you know emotion to find this person so again there's just too many details there's a lot of blame to be thrown around if if we want to go down that route i really don't want to i just i just know that there is and we're going to talk about it more later but getting back to the investigation itself an autopsy on the remains would be conducted and sadly it would be found that dennis suffered multiple bone fractures but this was believed to have occurred post-mortem and likely the result of searchers stepping on his remains at some point in the in the investigation And based on the state of the remains, it would be hard to find a cause of death, and investigators would once again have to focus on possible scenarios that led to the situation. And now, without the whole Dennis is missing and out in the world somewhere, you're down to basically two options. Was this a medical emergency or was it foul play? And I know most of you are thinking right now, if the body's hidden under a pile of clothes, how can it be a medical emergency? But... We'll go back to Daniel Berta. What you need to understand was he was a transient drug user who was being allowed to stay in the home in exchange for some handiwork. And we know at the time of the disappearance, Dennis had reported Berta being violent towards him, and Dennis was advised to serve Berta with eviction paperwork. So now you have to put yourself in Berta's shoes, and you're about to lose your place to stay, and Dennis, let's just say it's a medical emergency, and Dennis dies in the house. Ernie's in the hospital, Dennis is dead in the house. If you're that desperate, maybe you just cover up the body and lie to police and tell them Dennis went for a walk and didn't come back. And now, while the vast majority of us would never think like this, the vast majority of us have never been in such a dire situation and had to make that choice. But investigators also have to weigh the possibility that Dennis was killed, and that's why his body was covered up. Luckily for them, the most likely suspect is Daniel Berta. They just have to find him and talk to him. But before we get to that part of the investigation, police do have another angle to pursue before they even talk to Berta. Remember those two women that were found to have sold Dennis's car to the couple that were found in possession of it in July, right after Dennis was reported missing? Those women would be eventually charged with the theft of a motor vehicle and one was found to have sold a brooch belonging to Dennis Day. Now, the women were associated with Daniel Berta, and these women likely told investigators some vital information about Berta's involvement in what happened to Dennis. Because just a week after the two women were arrested, investigators tracked down Daniel Berta, and on July 5th, 2019, Berta was arrested in connection to the death of Dennis Day. So let's look at Daniel Berta a little closer. While not much is known about Daniel Berta's younger life, he was already well known to law enforcement at the time of his death. Berta had previous arrests in Oregon for sexual assault, robbery, and assault, and that was before he started using meth in 2017. According to prosecutors, Berta told police that in mid-July of 2018, Dennis was trying to evict him from the property, and there were a lot of arguments and physicality surrounding the eviction. He admitted to pushing Dennis to the ground, and then not assisting him as he laid on the floor and eventually died. Berta then covered up the body with a large pile of clothing and admitted to trying to clean up the room on several occasions due to the smell. And again, I, with the source material lacking on this investigation, 
I don't know if this was a statement that was given freely by Berta. I'm assuming it's not with a lawyer present because there's going to be a lot of questions about the admissibility of statements later on in this case, but I'm guessing that Bert is savvy enough. He's got an extensive enough criminal history. He's in his late 30s. He's been involved with multiple criminal cases at this point that if he could easily turn what was possibly an intentional murder into a lesser charge such as manslaughter or some type of negligent homicide charge by getting rid of the intent. So it's easy for him to give a statement that implies that whatever happened to Dennis was a mistake and then he just neglected to help the man which eventually led to his death and then he just covered up the body so that he could keep living there versus if he gave a statement stating that he strangled or stabbed or you know intentionally caused the death of dennis then that's going to be you know depending on which state it is it could be either a, a felony murder it could be a murder one charge it could be some you know some form of 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 higher level murder charge that will carry much heavier sentence down the road so the statement given by Berta's is probably the best statement that he can offer up now it could also be the truth at which point you know it still makes him a horrible human being and it just means that that day he didn't intend to kill Dennis by his direct actions but instead by his inaction he knew that that Dennis would die or Dennis did die and then he just covered it up now sadly in September of 2019 Ernie Caswell Dennis's husband also passes away that same month Berta was charged with second-degree manslaughter criminally negligent homicide criminal mistreatment and abuse of a corpse at his initial hearing, a psychological exam of Berta found him unfit to stand trial, and Berta was committed to a state mental hospital for treatment. And I know we've talked about this before. This is not an insanity defense situation. This is a he's unfit to stand trial. He can't adequately make decisions with his legal counsel during his trial. So the judge is going to deem that he needs to be treated at this mental health facility until he's capable of assisting and and the reason for that is if his lawyers present him with a plea agreement and he agrees to that plea agreement and it's later determined that he didn't have the mental capacity to do so it's going to open up all types of uh, a can of worms for the legal stuff down the road in regards to that so He's got to get psychologically treated to the point that he can agree to a plea agreement. He can agree to take it to trial, understanding the consequences of losing said trial. And the case was likely delayed several times due to COVID issues, because uh, this is you know the end of 2019 going into 2020. And as of 2023, Berta has not faced justice for his crimes against Dennis Day. On April 19th of 2023, however, Berta was able to plead guilty to an unrelated felony charge that either occurred before the murder or during the almost one year that Dennis was considered missing before he was found. And so the fact that he's able to plead guilty to this unrelated felony charge, I don't know if the courts found him able to understand that charge and not understand the more serious charges i don't know if that just means that very soon down the road here he's gonna be deemed fit to to stand trial for uh, his involvement with dennis day's death the prosecutors have commented on their case against berta after it was revealed via the media that a large portion of the evidence against berta was deemed inadmissible Prosecutors now claim they have been able to reverse the decisions on most of the evidence and are confident to bring this case to trial when possible. So it might also be that he has been deemed competent to stand trial. However, there's been a lot of 
motions filed by both sides prepping for this trial and ultimately his defense attorney is not going to accept or offer any type of a plea agreement situation until they know what type of evidence they're facing so it might just be that there's a lot of stuff going on with the case moving closer to either some type of a plea agreement or a trial in this case now separate from the criminal trial the family of dennis day is suing the phoenix police department for 2.2 million dollars in damages as they claim the police failed to do their duty and caused undue stress for the time period in which dennis was missing and this is difficult we're actually the case we're going to cover in the next episode is going to involve a lot of officer involved decision making and liability um, issues so i'm not going to get too much into it with this case because that one uh, it's going to be a much more front and center but this is one of those cases where it's very difficult for officers now again when i or if i was able to see all of the evidence in this case i'm would be in a much better position to to comment on whether or not i believe that the the phoenix oregon police department messed this up or not oftentimes what's released to the media or what we're finding in these source materials is either not the whole truth or in some cases a complete fabrication of the truth just because it's being told by sources that are either lying or thinking they're telling the truth but they don't really have as much information as they claim so Again, based on the material I have, I'm I'm not going to comment on on what exactly happened in this case. I'm hoping that at some point in the future, if this civil trial does go forward, there'll be more information about what happened during those searches. Were there cases where the officers just didn't do their job? They didn't, you know, they want to get out there because ultimately these garbage houses are are terrible i mean a lot of them are are health hazards for first responders to even be in in the first place if you ever watch movies that cover crime scenes the way they they should be covered my mind goes to the movie seven most people who who like true crime that's that's one of their their go-to movies and there's a scene and i i want to say it's the sloth deadly sin that they're investigating and the guy's got the air fresheners hanging all around and everything like that and and they're the main two actors are almost losing um, their ability to maintain their composure and, and almost vomiting just based on the smell of that and and it's it's something that's very hard to project upon the audience uh even when it's visual we're sitting in our own homes watching these movies or sitting in a movie theater watching a movie you're not smelling what is coming through there so sometimes directors are really good at least having the actors act as if it smells really bad and then there's some connections in our brain made with it but when you're hearing it on a podcast when you're seeing it on tv that that correlation might not be made it's this is one of those homes where you probably didn't want to be in here for more than 30 seconds before you wanted to run out and get get a breath of fresh air and sometimes officers would wear uh, respirators or 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 certain devices to try to go into these homes and and some people just don't have the stomach for it at all so again i don't know if that was what the situation with this house that it was going to be so bad that that they just didn't do their job searching it properly or whether it was in such a condition that it was almost impossible for them to find this body and that'll get worked out at some point down down the road here with the courts but it just it's one of the further difficulties officers face and it, it falls back to as we talked about the um investigators or, or sorry the questioning the family as to did they not have access to this property for them to do their own search in the property not to say that it's the family's job but i'm just telling you that if one of my loved ones was missing i wouldn't be sitting around for eight months if i had the capabilities to do so uh, to go out and try to find them especially i'm not saying go off into the woods and 
and, and search for 10 hours a day in the in the area around there if I had no idea that that person where they could have gone but if it's a small house it wouldn't take me more than you know half a day and with good equipment to go through that home and make sure 100% that that Dennis wasn't in the home so again I'm not letting the the Police department off the hook. I'm not letting the family off the hook on this one. I, I don't have the specifics to do it um, either way, but I'm just saying overall it's it's just a, a frustrating and sad case. And, you know, the case ended up being a little bit more involved than I thought it would be considering the lack of source material on this one, but it is an interesting and sad case of, of Dennis Day. I will try to do an update in the future if and when Berta stands trial, and I plan on keeping an eye on the civil lawsuit to see if that goes anywhere, and hopefully if both of them are resolved at some point here in the future, I can I can do a quick update episode, and then maybe I can actually provide some more insight into uh, the outcome of the case and, and, and what happened here, so... So that's it for the case of Dennis Day. Thank you for listening. Stay tuned for future episodes and feel free to write me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions at gmail.com. You can also find me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions on Facebook and support me via Patreon at TrueBlueCrimeProductions. That's it for today, guys. Thanks for listening. Talk to you later. Goodbye.